you know, there is a danger at Christmas time in focusing on the wrong thing. A lot of things at Christmas time to focus on. A lot of different elements. But if you focus on the wrong thing, it can lead you in the wrong way. I want to read something. And kids, any kids in here, just want you to know that as I'm reading this, there's stuff in here I'm not real sure of myself. So I don't know if I would believe it. It's written by one of those engineer types. And we know those type of people. So don't, don't, I don't know if I'd take it too. But anyway, the engineer is looking at Santa Claus. And he says this. It says, there are approximately 378 million Christian children in the world, according to the Population Reference Bureau. With an average census rate of 3.5 children per household, one can assume that there are 108 million homes, presuming that there is at least one good child in each. Santa has about 31 hours of Christmas to work with, thanks to the different time zones and the rotation of the earth if he travels east to west. That means he must make 967.7 visits per second. For each household with a good child, Santa has around one one-thousandth of a second to park the sleigh, climb down the chimney, fill the stockings, distribute the remaining presents under the tree, eat whatever snacks have been left for him, get back up the chimney, jump into the sleigh, and get out of the next house. Now, assuming that each of these 108 million stops is evenly distributed around the earth, there is roughly 0.78 miles between households. Giving Santa a total trip of 75.5 million miles, not counting bathroom stops. Now, this means that Santa's sleigh is moving at 650 miles per second, 3,000 times the speed of sound. For purposes of comparison, the fastest man-made vehicle, the Ulysses Space Probe, moves at a pokey 27.4 miles per second. And a conventional reindeer can run at a maximum of 15 miles per hour. The payload of the sleigh adds another interesting element. Assuming that each child gets nothing more than a medium-sized Lego set weighing around two pounds, the sleigh is carrying over 500,000 tons, not counting Santa. A conventional reindeer can pull no more than 300 pounds. Even granting that flying reindeer could pull 10 times the normal weight, the job couldn't be done by nine of them. Santa would need close to 360,000 reindeer. 600,000 tons traveling at 650 miles per second creates an enormous air resistance that would heat up the reindeer in much the same way as a spacecraft re-entering Earth's atmosphere. The lead pair of reindeer would absorb 14.3 quintillion joules of energy per second each. In short, they would burst into flames instantaneously. The entire reindeer team would be vaporized within 4.26 thousandths of a second or right about the time Santa reached the fifth house on his trip. Not that it matters, since Santa, as a result of accelerating from a dead stop to 650 miles per second in one thousandth of a second, would be subjected to centrifugal forces of 17,500 Gs. A 250-pound Santa would be pinned to the back of the sleigh by 4.3 million pounds of force, instantly crushing his bones and organs and reducing him to a quivering blob of pink goo. In other words, if Santa ever existed, he's dead now. Again, kids, that was written by one of those engineers, so I'm not so sure what you want to do. But either way, if we focus on the wrong thing at Christmas time, see, it can lead us in the wrong way. We could. Now, most of us know that Christmas isn't all the stuff wrapped under the tree, that it's really the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes 
We know that because we've experienced it. If you've grown up in the church at all, then there was a time when you probably donned your dad's bathrobe and put the towel around your head, and you were a shepherd in the Christmas pageant, right? Everyone was a shepherd at some point. No one wanted to be one. We wanted to be a king because you got the crown, but we were all, extra people were always the shepherds. We, we, can you imagine a Christmas without a star, and without the wise men, and without shepherds, and without a uh, trip to Bethlehem, and without a manger, and without a Mary and Joseph, and without a babe? Can you imagine a Christmas like them sacrilegious? Right? I mean, everyone knows that is the Christmas story. If you take all that stuff away, there is no Christmas story. But the Apostle John didn't know that. When he wrote the Christmas story, he didn't include any of those things. Those things are, are good, they're inspired, they're, they're part of, of Scripture. But here's my concern. As Christians, sometimes we can lose sight of the essence of Christmas because of all the descriptors. We can focus on all of the descriptors and we can lose the real meaning. And so what John does for us, though Matthew and Luke describe Christmas, John defines it. And John tells us what the essence of Christmas is. And it's kind of like he pulls the veil back from heaven. And he allows us to see Christmas from God's perspective. And my contention for myself, for all of us, is that unless we see Christmas from God's perspective, it may be fun and enjoyable and warm and fuzzy and all those nice things, but it will not be life-transforming. And so what our goal is this morning is we want to step back, we want to look at Christmas through the fourth gospel writer's eyes, God's eyes, and see Christmas that way. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John. Jesus met John. John was probably around 17. Jesus asked him to be one of the 12 apostles. Then out of that group, Jesus had three kind of good friends, Peter, James, and John. And then out of that three, Peter had, Jesus had a best friend, John. And John is writing this. He's an old man. Matthew, Mark, Luke had already been written. But he's writing this. And so he starts off. John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, when John starts writing, John is going to hearken his Jewish readers back to something very significant. He knows that every Jewish boy and girl has some words indelibly stamped on their mind. Every Jewish man and woman knows one verse for sure, and it's blasted in their mind. And so John starts off the same sort of way. It's Breshit, bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. Very first verse of the Bible. Every Jewish person's got that down. Very first words of the Torah, of Genesis. In the beginning, God created. He starts off, in the beginning. And shh, their minds go right there. And you think, back to your Genesis, how did God create? Does it say he created with his mighty arm of power? No. 
Did he create by the Holy Spirit? No, Holy Spirit was there, was part of it, but no. Did he create by his armies, by his angels? No, he created by his word. Remember, he spoke and said, let there be light. And there was light. He created by his word. Now, we don't get too metaphysical here, but what does word mean? I mean, if you and I had been at this creation, we kind of like on the back watching him create all this stuff, and he spoke, would there have been actual noises coming from God in some language or the other that had some degree of volume that if, in fact, our ears were working properly, we could actually hear a noise? Maybe. I, I, I don't know. When John uses the word word, the, the word he uses to describe it is the word logos. Logos. And one thing you need to know about John, is this, John's a cool guy. I like him because he was a fisherman. He had an incredibly high IQ. John uh, writes in a just literary genius in so many levels. He writes uh, with irony. So he's on different levels often. And I think he's doing that here. For the Greeks that he would be uh, reading and communicating to, writing and communicating to. The word logos, they knew what the logos was. So when he says, in the beginning was the logos, they're like, that's right. Because the logos for a Greek is, is if you go back in history, you keep going back and back and back until you can't go back any further. What you run into is the logos. It is this supreme power. It, it created everything. All wisdom and insight is in this logos thing. It's just, it's there. It's the huge. It's the ultimate. It's impersonal. We can never know it. But it, it, it's there. So in verse 14, when John says, in the beginning was the logos, the supreme ultimate thing, the Greeks would be going, yeah. And then he says, and the logos became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek folk would be going, yeah. I know, I'm not sure it works that way. Uh, you know, I think that uh, most folk know that there's a something out there. Uh, Einstein said, of course there is a power behind this, but we cannot know it. Uh, we ask questions that betray this. We say, well, uh, why did this happen to me? Well, let's face it, if the cosmos is nothing more than an haphazard accidental conglomeration of molecules, there is no why, right? Why is a nonsensical thing. It just is. There's no reason. We say, well, it wasn't meant to be. It wasn't in the stars. You know, what do you mean by that? You're assuming that there's something out there that kind of means stuff to be. That there's something out there that kind of just has a whim or desire and kind of arranges life. And I had a a buddy who is just a, a strong, strong atheist. We were driving uh, to, I think we were going through Detroit, I forget where we were going. But he was waxing eloquent on how awful Christianity was and how any intelligent person is an atheist and on and on, it's foolish to believe in God and on and on. And I'm, I'm, we're driving, we've been driving for some time, and I was behind the wheel and I wasn't paying a lot of attention or whatever. And all of a sudden, right downtown, I think it was Detroit, but right downtown, and all of a sudden we noticed, both of us at the same time, that the car in front of me had stopped. And we're going to hit this guy going about 50 miles an hour. I mean, there's not a lot of time. So I swung it off to the side on the shoulder, but there's this huge cement embankment keeping the, us from hit, going to the traffic coming the other way. So I swung back, but not a lot because we were on the other side of the car at this point. And so we're driving down this you know, shoulder thing. Probably feels like two inches between our car and the cement wall and two, two inches in this other car as we're passing these cars as I'm on my brakes. And he's, you know, screaming, ah! Well, guess what he was screaming? Oh, God, help us! God, help us! 
when we finally stopped, I'm serious, this is true, we finally stopped, and I couldn't get my hands off the wheel, but we finally stopped, I said, for an atheist, you pray well. <laughs> he said, well, you know, you just never know. You just, you just never know. It's easy to be an atheist until you're in trouble, right? Then I, for for Jewish people who John would be addressing as well, they knew the Logos. The Logos for them was when God spoke. It was God's creative power. It was, again, it was an inanimate kind of, like an emotion sort of thing. It was, it was, it was a power. And so John's saying, that creative power, you know, all things were made to him, that creative power became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Jewish people would be going, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, this Logos, I love this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So it's distinct from God, and yet, the Word was God. You know, this, this idea, we saw this even last week, Isaiah 9, 6. A child will be born, but he will be called Almighty God. He's saying this, this Logos was with God, so he was distinct from God, and yet he was God at the same time. It's a u- unique deal. Uh, think about Logos. Think of the word word for a minute. Have you ever heard anyone come to you and say, I want to share something with you that I've never shared with anyone before? When you're listening at this point, right? And what comes out of their mouth, you know it's not going to be superficial. It is something that's happened to them, something that they've done, something that they believe, some value, some something. And you know, if you listen, you will understand something about them that very few other people know. Very few. Jesus is the word of, of God. It's as if inside God are his plans and his ideas and his desires, and they're just kind of bottled up in God. But God is going to bring forth his word, which is going to... Communicate what's going on inside God. That's what Jesus does. Jesus is here to communicate thoughts of God, the mind of God. You want to see God? Then what you need to do is look at Jesus. That's, that's, that's what, 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 what he's saying. That's what's going on. The Word was with God and the Word was God. This is the message of Christmas. Just so we're all on the same page. The message is not the star and the stable and there's this girl. and uh, Important things. The message is God became man. Jesus, God, came down to earth for you and for me. The infinite became the finite. The, the, the divine became mortal. The invisible became visible. God became man. That's the message of Christmas. That's the essence of Christmas. We can't forget that. That's what uh, John Wesley says. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. And so Jesus is God. He says in verse 14, which says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know that word made his dwelling among us. John could have used a lot of different words. He lived with us. He hung out with us. He walked with us. He just was with us. He, doesn't, he picks a very specific word. And in his, his, his choice 
of vocabulary, what he's going to do is he's going to hearken his, his Jewish listeners back to, to Exodus 33. If you remember this, Moses is hanging out with God, talking with God, and Moses is saying, God, please, will you help me just to see your glory? That's your fullness. You know, God, a lot of people are talking about God this and God is that. God, will you just help me? What's the truth? Will you help me to know you, the truth, in your fullness? You know, if God came to you right now and said, you got one request, just ask me and I'll give it to you. We would, we had all kinds of things, right? Uh, but I think if we really stopped and we started saying, okay, if there really is a God, probably the most important thing for me to know is how can I connect with him, who he really is. I think Moses is kind of the representative of all of mankind. I just want to know who you are, who you are. And so uh, God, Exodus 33 says, you know, Moses, no. And we can't do that. And it's not that I'm being mean. The issue is that if you saw my glory, if you were exposed to it, it would vaporize you. It's kind of like saying you want to study and know the sun. But if you just look at the sun, two things are going to happen. Either way, you're going to turn away and just see this white blob. Or you're going to fry your retinas, right? There's really no other options. And it's not that the sun is mean. It's not that there's a conspiracy out there, you know, between the atmosphere and your body. The bottom line is... We just can't handle it. And God is saying, Moses, you just can't handle it. You you almost, if you look at the sun, you have to have a filter between you and the sun. And if you have that filter, you can see the sun flares and you can really study. But God's saying right now, there's no filter, Moses. This would would destroy you. But then God says, "Ah, but I got a plan. Moses, how about this? We build this thing. Uh, We'll call it a uh, tabernacle. And it's going to have two rooms in it. And that back room, we're going to like put curtains up and stuff. My glory will hang out in there. Now, no one can come in there because they can't see my glory. But my glory will be in there. And wherever you go, this thing will be like a tent. And so if you go someplace, it's not a big deal. Just pull up the sticks and, and take me with you. And so wherever you guys are walking around, I'm right there. My glory is right there with you. The word he uses, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. And these people are thinking, through Jesus, we can understand God the way Moses wanted to, but couldn't. If we really want to know God, he's right here, he's tabernacling among us. All we got to do is look to him and see him. And we'll see him. Now, this, for us, it's easy for us, even growing up in the church, to have all the Christmas pageant things, all the church things, all, the, all kind of political things, whatever else in life, and those are our focus, and oh yeah, Jesus is there, but all these other things we're focusing on. And the reality is, if you want to know God, you have to focus on Jesus. He has got to be center stage. And sometimes we think, as long as we got like signed a contract with him, we'll put him off stage, and that's cool because we're still in, that's all that matters, and we can go on and do all of our stuff with life, and look back every once in a while, make sure he's still there, and we're okay. But if we want to know God, we've got to focus on Jesus. Now, this is how this works. Look over at John chapter 3. John chapter 3. It says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish, Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you, you are doing if God was not with them. Now, uh, 
Pharisees, this is what they did. Pharisees were in charge of knowing the the Old Testament, specifically those first five books that we're going to be reading together, the Pentateuch, they call those the law. And this is what they believed. They believed that in the law, there was an answer to every single possible dilemma you will ever face. It's either going to be in there explicitly or implicitly. And so they would look at all the stuff that people are dealing with, and of course it doesn't speak directly to those things, so they would look through the law to find principles that they would apply to all these different things. And these principles that they came up with were God's word, they would say, and if you didn't do these thousands and thousands of principles that they came up with, you were not applying God's word to your life. And so a, a Pharisee's job is what he, what he did, is he was all about learning and knowing God's word and the principles and trying to apply them to other people's lives and his life as well. But Nicodemus wasn't just a Pharisee. He was a leader, right? I mean, he was one of the senators. Nicodemus, very intelligent, high IQ'd, very wise, very sharp guy. And he comes to Jesus at night. Could have been. He'd had a long day. He had a day job. He could only come at night. Maybe. It's a possibility. But back to that irony thing with John. Almost always when John refers to night, he's referring to stealth and deception and and, uh, some instances evil. And so most probably why he says this is Nicodemus doesn't want to be seen. He's either coming representing some other folk or he's just representing himself. But he knows that the Pharisees don't like Jesus. Sanhedrin's not part of Jesus. And if they see him hanging with Jesus, it's going to be a bad deal. But he knows that he's been trying to study the law and he's been trying to connect with God and he's been trying... And he's just... You know what Nicodemus knows? He knows what everybody knows who's trying to get to God by doing good things. Have I done enough? And what if I'm missing something and I'm trying hard, but what if, and what if when that time I lost my temper, it just negates everything that I just did? If you're trying to get to him by being good, that's, you're just never going to know. And so he sees Jesus as like a, a, a light in the darkness and he says, somehow I think he knows God. And so he comes. Jesus. You know, I think that I'd be surprised, you'd be surprised if we knew the names of our friends who come to Jesus at night. You can't come in the daylight. Other people see me, kids see me at school, other people from there. It's like, it's like social suicide if they think I'm really interested in finding out about God. If I really kind of, you've got to pretend like you're not there. But when the lights go off, when the doors are locked, when you're in your room by yourself, I wonder how many night visitors Jesus has had, people calling out, are you real? Are you out there? It's like they know there's that Logos thing. Are you out there somewhere? Can I? He comes at night. Jesus knows exactly what's on his heart. Nicodemus didn't come just to, to talk to him about the weather or the Packers or anything. And so Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Now, the Pharisees, this is what they thought. They thought that one day the Messiah would come and he would set up his kingdom. And when he did... If you wanted to get in, especially if you want to be in charge, you want to be large and in charge, you want to be in control, the people who were in charge are those folk who knew the law and they applied every piece of it to their life, explicitly or implicitly. The better you were, the better chance you had of being in charge in the kingdom, when the kingdom came. And Jesus looks at him and says, Whoa, Nicodemus. You are barking up the wrong tree, man. I'm telling you, you think you're going to be in charge. You're not even going to get in. 
You're not even coming through the door, buddy. The only way you can get in is to be, and he uses this born again phrase. And so when you read Nicodemus' words here, don't, I mean, Nicodemus is a very smart man. Don't, well, how does a heavy man get back into my mom? My mom's only 120 pounds. How's this going? He's not thinking that. Read sarcasm and cynicism and skepticism. You know, what in the world are you talking? Most ridiculous thing. What are you thinking? Jesus, you're embarrassing. What are you talking about? That's what he's saying. Which is why Jesus comes back in verse 5. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. He says, I'm not messing with you here, Nicodemus. I'm not playing word games with you. I'm telling you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Now, what does those mean? Well, he's going to define it. Uh, water is physical birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh. It's a physical birth. So you've got to be born physically. But the Spirit gives birth to spirit. But you also have to be born spiritually. He says, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. He says, Nicodemus, where have you been? Don't be looking at me like i got two heads. Like I'm speaking a foreign language here. Where have you been? This should not be new news. And so when Nicodemus says in verse 9, how can this be? Verse 10, Jesus says, you're Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things? Jesus is rebuking him here. He says, you, wait a minute, make sure, I'm, I'm sorry, I thought you were a Pharisee. I thought you knew God's word. Surely, if you know God's word, then this shouldn't be a surprise to you. I think he's referring back to Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you. And move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. He says, Nicodemus, this is not hidden stuff. How come you don't know this? You know it. You have to have the Spirit. Even to get into the kingdom of God. Where have you been? So Jesus is mentioning to him. And then Jesus tells him a story. Beginning in verse 14. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Jesus knows that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's got the, like the five, first five books of the Bible almost memorized. That's what we're going to be reading through with our Old Testament study. And in Numbers 21, remember the story there, Israelites are out in the desert and they're complaining because that's what we do. We just complain, oh God, I don't have this, that, and everything. So they're complaining and God's upset. And so what God sends among them in judgment are these serpents, snakes, who, who, when they bite, they're poisonous. And so all these people are dying. And so Moses says, God, all the people are dying. What do we do? And God says, because people all cry out, ah, help us. It's what we do when we get into trouble. We make a big mess and we get in trouble. And then we cry out to God, right? Ah, help us. And so God says, okay, I'll help them. So make a, gold, uh, a bronze snake, put it on a pole, and then lift it up. And tell the people that if they will look, if they will focus on that brown, brown snake, you know what? They'll be healed. And so Moses does this. Everybody who focuses on the, the brown snake, they're healed. And so Jesus knows this story, and he knows Nicodemus knows this story. So he says, just as that, that snake had to be lifted up, and those who looked at it were, were, were saved, so the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, has to be lifted up. Now, I don't think Nicodemus knew exactly what he was meaning there. But later on in the gospel, John will tell us specifically what he means when Jesus is lifted up. 
It's when he was crucified. He was lifted up from this earth on, on, on a pole, on a stick, on, on a cross. And Jesus is saying, he knows he's going to die. That's why he's here. Nicodemus, I have to be lifted up. That's why I'm here. And when I am, if you believe in me, if you look to me, then you know what? You'll be saved. Just like in the Old Testament. That was a picture of me, Nicodemus. And then he tells Nicodemus, the probably the most famous verse in the Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The ancients did not necessarily believe that the gods loved. The gods didn't love us. They used people. They played with us. They used. The Hebrews believed that he did, but not the same way you and I have been trained by Hollywood to believe what love is. Uh, it's more, more stoic. And so when John says, God loves, it's kind of a strange thought. Okay. I'm supposed to love God. God loves me, though. Yeah, God loves so much that he gave. You know, you can't, it's hard to love somebody and not give, isn't it? If you really love someone, you just want to give. You want to give. You want to give. God loves so much that he gave. That's what God did. Here's our part. Uh, we have to believe. Now, it's important, important for us to understand what he's talking about here. He doesn't say even, believe in, like believe that. Like believe that George Washington crossed the Delaware. Believe that Abraham Lincoln was our 16th president. Believe that Jesus died, was real, he died and he rose from the dead. Believe that and everything's cool. It's not what it's saying. The word he uses here, very interesting. Uh, It's into, believe into, because in the Greek there's no real word for trust. So John's going to invent one here. He says, you have to believe into me. Uh, you have to, to throw your weight behind. You have to, to r- let go and lean into me. He's, he's not talking about, well, I, I signed a thing way back when and I went for and I, I prayed a prayer. It, it start, can start there, certainly. No question about it, no question about it. But that's, that's, that's just starting, getting to this idea of I'm trusting him. And he says, you've got to trust. You've got, you've got to, and this is, this is the picture that, that we use sometimes. Um, this stool, you might look at the stool and you might say, well, you know, okay, I can see this stool. I believe in this stool. I understand this stool. It's made out of like a metal, black lacquer on it. It's got a cushy thing here. It's on a swivel. I, yeah, I see it. I understand it. You might be able to even count up the, the footage of, of metal that's used. You might know the exact alloy combination. You might, you might have this thing down. You might understand the stool better than almost anybody else. You've grown up in church, you know it. And sometimes you'll come to the stool and, and you'll lean on it. Not, not, you won't sit on it because that's too dangerous because it won't hold you up. You're going to crash. So, but you'll kind of lean into it a little bit. If it doesn't work, that's okay. You kind of believe in him, but you believe in other stuff too just in case this one doesn't work out. You just kind of lean in on him. But what the word means is you've come to the stool. And you know what? You're not. You're going to kind of put all your weight on it. So much so that you know what? If this is not true, you've wasted your life. It's not like, well, it's just a nice eternal fire insurance. No, 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 no. He doesn't give us that option. This is what it means to believe. Now, maybe some of you 
students, kids, you've grown up in church, you know all about the stool, you've heard about it, you had Sunday school classes on it, you got it figured out. You can tell a lot of people about it. You've even come, you've tucked, you leaned on it, but you have never surrendered your life. You've never believed into him. Maybe, husband, you've come because your wife perhaps has come to realize that Jesus is someone you should believe into and she's committed her life there and so you're still maybe trying to figure this out or maybe you've been coming for a while and you're thinking, you know what, I, I, I might believe in, but I'm not believing into. You know, I, I'm not giving any control or anything over. I, you know, I just like my life too much. Maybe senior person, and you know, you know someone like this. They've been coming to church their whole life. They've given Bible studies on the stool. They know it. But they have never given their life to it, trusted it 100%, surrendered their life to it. They're not there. Maybe, you know, Nicodemus, this is fascinating, he walks away here. And he doesn't, it's not changed. He's heard new stuff. Maybe stuff he's never heard before. He said, man, I've got to process this. It's hard to get outside the old paradigms. And Nicodemus is there. But what he's going to do is for the next couple of years, he's going to keep an eye on Jesus. When Jesus is teaching, he's going to accidentally be walking by there on the road, just kind of listening. He's going to notice what he's doing. And the reason why we know that's what he did is because when Jesus died, when he was lifted up, I think everything connected for, 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 for Nicodemus. He realized, ah, oh, that's right. This is what Jesus said. That's right. And so picture this, Nicodemus in his full pharisaical robes, steps out of the darkness and he goes to, to the cross where Jesus' bloodied body is and he takes it down. He's carrying the bloodied body of Jesus in his nice religious garb. Every one of his Pharisee buddies would see what he's doing. He said, you know what? It's time for me to get on the stool. I, I'm trusting in. I believe into. I'm surrendering my life to him. Perhaps for you this morning. You've come to Christmas for who knows how long. You, you've heard all of the, You know the stool. You got it. But you know what? You have never accepted that gift from God to you. You haven't, you haven't accepted it. You haven't accepted it. Maybe this morning is such for you. Maybe for you, you might be a person who has. You, you've given your life to Christ. But you know, in all honesty, he's there. You surrendered. But he's kind of in the back. And all these other things you're focusing on right now, here's the reality. If we're going to know God, we have to become Masters, students of Jesus. Where you know what? We are going to study his, his parables. We're going to study what he preached. We're going to look at and study what he did. We're going to get into the epistles even. That's going to point back to the cross to Jesus. And we're just going to be students of Jesus. Because if we are, you know what? If we are, our faith will... We will know God. Because that's why Jesus came. He's the word to reveal God to us. So let me ask you. This Christmas is Christmas for you, all about the decorations and the, the angels and the shepherd even. Or is it about the essence that God came down to this earth for you and for me?